Hey, good people. This is Jamila. And Jester. And you are listening to another episode of Music and We. Music and We, absolutely. (laughs) And this episode is dedicated to John Blackwell, amazing drummer who worked with Prince for many, many years. And he transcended not too long ago. And I know you had some experiences with him. Yeah, John Blackwell. I only met John Blackwell once, which was my first Prince show. Um, but that was a great time because, you know, this was the show I was dreaming to go on for so long. And so it was my first Prince show, and he had Third Eye Girl and the MPG. And John Blackwell played the drums for Shush, you know, which is one of my favorite songs. And <laughs> he did an amazing job. And that performance in particular, I remember being kind of sad. Prince didn't play guitar at all during the show in particular that song where it's supposed to be all these guitar solos but he did it with his voice and I just remember after the solo John Blackwell gave away three of his drumsticks and I was the third person he gave it to me and smiled and was like thank you so much you know and just his growth and his relationship with music is phenomenal so we give much respect on John Blackwell's name. Thank you John Blackwell. I'm always going to think of family name because his song was just, his name was mentioned in the song. (laughs) And that's definitely one of my favorite Prince songs. (laughs) In this episode, we are talking about mental health and your experience with Prince, I think, is really crucial to this aspect of mental health. Because for all intents and purposes, Prince was about growth. And he was definitely known to fire people. But in my experience as an outsider, I think his firing, quote unquote, of people was to encourage growth. And so he worked with people at a certain amount of time, but understood that for his own growth and for the people he's fired, their growth, you can't be stagnant with whatever music you're doing. As we talked about in another episode, he did For You, which was him 99.9% of the time. But then he worked with The Time, and then he worked with members of the Revolution and fired the Revolution and moved on to the MPG and then kind of funneled musicians in and out to feed whatever creative process he felt he needed to feed. It was ever growing, ever changing. And I think growth is really important for mental health. This is not what we're seeing in more recent times. And even, you know, when Prince was here, you saw the need to have yes people in your life and you don't grow in that way when you're not able to be critiqued with love, of course. You know, there were definitely times we saw Prince again, as an outsider, not respond positively to critiques, but I think in his own life as an artist, and even as a man, I think his ability to be a chameleon, his ability to grow, had to have the process of letting people go. Yes. There was a reason always. (laughs) Even if the reason may have seemed kind of uh, lackluster, he definitely made it clear if he wasn't getting the the work that he put in. If that return of his investment wasn't kind of acknowledged, then he was like, all right, well, 
I'll just get somebody else <laughs> that can do it because you're not growing. And he, so, yeah, I don't think it was always, I'm sure there may have been times, I don't know fully the stories of people who were fired by Prince, but sometimes you read stuff and it's like, oh, well, that makes sense why you did that. And then <laughs> other times it's like, he knows the situation. So he was all about growth going back to what you're saying. I think the growth uh, really meant something to him because he was always growing. Another two or three years, it didn't matter what he was doing, it was going to transform into something else regardless, which means musicians might not be around that were, or they might have a completely different role assigned. So that's just the way it was. And I, and I, I, I like that. I think that's cool when you can be like, all right, I've grown from this. I'm going to go to this because that's how it is. <laughs> <laughs> and in your experience where you've had moments with him did you think he gave you the space to grow at all yeah most definitely i mean at first i think they were trying to see where i could fit in the whole thing because you know they had started getting social media i remember twitter came along and that was the first I remember i got the call when he first joined twitter which was mind-blowing because <laughs> It's like, I got a call from his, from Trevor and he, he's like, hey, are you online? Are you up? And I was, this was late too. This is like two, three o'clock in the morning. No joke. <laughs> and he's like, go to, he sends me a link and it's the link to Baltimore, the song mm. Baltimore. And he was like, oh, you know, you can share this if you want to. And Prince um, wants you to know that, you know, he's just released a Twitter. And then they gave me the Twitter account name. And I'm like, what? Twitter, finally? You know, because this has always <laughs> been the thing we've been wanting to get him on Twitter. And he finally joined the Twitter. And that just started a whole new form of communication. It was so direct and funny and all that. So, I mean, he was he was always growing. That was a big deal because prior to that, you know, Prince was never online. I mean, and if you joined, if you managed to join his site, I mean, who knows how long that would be around? Nine months math. So, you know, who knows? <laughs> You don't get your Lotus Flower T-shirt either, so <laughs> so I mean, he was always about going on doing things, and I think he allowed me to see when I first joined in. Okay, I, sometimes I did things online, and I would write a promotion or, hey, can you make a video about Paisley Park? Can you tell you know my fans that this is the direction I'm going in when I do artificial age and functional electron? So he was very big on like using whoever was around to tell his message. And I'm thankful that he would, you know, call me sometimes like, hey, let's, you know, let's talk about this, make a video about that or whatever. And mm -hmm. you know, he, but then it became about something else. Then eventually when I was a tour guide, then no, you don't need to make videos about that, you know, because the agreement has changed, you know, the situation is different. So yeah, I think he, he gave me time to be whatever I needed to, because it wasn't really about if you can't, it's like, if you're here, make yourself useful. You know how to work the teleprompter? Okay, you can do that. <laughs> and you can be a tour guide. And you can, you know, do whatever else. So it's kind of about wearing multiple hats in a way. And to do that, you have to grow in different capacities. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a point where it takes a very specific amount of humility to be there for Prince to start to work with people significantly younger than him, to explore new types of music. And he started doing things like EDM and dubstep. And it's a whole new world musically that people were not necessarily expecting from him. And to have Third Eyed Girl 
to be significantly younger than him, to work with Joshua Welton, a, a younger person who co-produced. That's a huge step. And yeah. so I think in a spiritual way, in a mental way, that was a way of him letting go, uh, letting go of the reins in a way, passing the torch to people. Because in my mind, when I saw the fro and when I saw all these other <laughs> things happen, I was like, it, it's the end. It, yeah, if you yeah. really think about it, it, it's a way of him saying goodbye. And I know there's a controversy and we'll do an episode on, on that. Was Prince murdered and all this? But I think in a spiritual way, once again, I think it was his way of letting go and, and saying, you know, I'm not going to be here for much longer. So the legacy that I've created, you're standing on my shoulders. And so continue that work. I really think that's what's going on. Experiences with him, the Third Eye Girl, with Liv Warfield, with Shelby J, yeah. with all of these people. Yeah. I think that's the work that really needed to be done uh, with Andy Allo, with, with so many people. Chris, I think his introduction to the Internet, he never got enough credit for being one of the ones who merged music with the online experience. Him and Chuck D, I don't think got enough credit for that. People yeah. do now credit people like Beyonce, but if it wasn't for <laughs> Chuck D with Sam Jams, if yeah. it wasn't for Prince and his various websites, I remember looking at one of them and it was well animated. It had this moving TV and right. I remember when all that yeah. was going on. <laughs> and then yeah. it went away. It just like, went away. <laughs> I mean, even when he was on Twitter, he would tweet and delete. So he would tweet something, right. and 30 seconds later, it's gone. If you right. got that long, even sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's, that was a way of him saying impermanency is a fact of life. And I don't want to do anything that will incriminate myself. I don't know. It could be right. as well. Exactly. It could be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, but him, that don't mean that don't mean we don't we didn't get strong and start screenshotting at the same time. It's like oh, as soon as you see a tweet, you better screenshot it and then you share it. <laughs> <laughs> he would even screenshot. He would share screenshots of his tweets. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the whole thing for him to get the fro, for him to work with young, it definitely is a 360. And I really have been thinking about it in a spiritual sense and i wrote about it just his work with you his work again with third eye girl it's a testament to his growth and i think i understand mm -hmm. and i think also his capacity despite how famous he was to remain private that's another way to maintain mental health i don't know how he did it but he did. Ooh, he would spend law. He would spend millions and millions on lawyers to make sure his uh, <laughs> shit was together. But also, he I think he had the incentive to know that. I mean, I just think this is the fact of him living for most of his life in Minnesota too. Mm -hmm. He just he's familiar. You know, okay, I built this place, this edifice, this is Paisley Park. I'm going to be here for most of the time. I'll create music. I'll go out when I need to. And when he did engage, it didn't seem like people would be all, hey, Prince, you know. I'm sure he probably got that on isolated occasions, but for the most part, it feels like uh, Chan Haston in particular respects 
that Prince lived there and he didn't get in his face. But um, it helped that he was away from Hollywood and he, he built his own kind of world because his life could have been different. There's also people who say, oh, well, he stayed there too long. You know, he, I mean, he was there since 1987. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was finished in 87 and it's like, wow, what a, what a time. You got 30 years of all of those memories <laughs> looking at you <laughs> next time you turn the corner. That's why you got to paint the wall because it's just a different feeling. But yeah, the fact that he maintained his prophecy, I think, it shows that he wasn't about no, no bull. <laughs> Even if he had to pay money to, to, to maintain that. <laughs> That's the risk you take. <laughs> right. And not have everybody around. You know? It's interesting you mentioned him moving into Paisley Park or, or building that compound in 87 because Neverland was built in 1987 or it came to fruition in 1987, Michael moved there and it was a public place. With Paisley Park, I'm not sure how much of a public place it was up until a certain point. It was a studio, it ran as a facility, but in terms of inviting people to these shows, inviting people to take tours, when did that start? Well, it seemed like it changed over the years. I mean, before it was open to the public too, because it was a studio, you know, artists could come and rent. But then it changed to, uh, I mean, because he had an apartment on the other side. And I don't know if that was built the same time in 1987. I think that was probably added afterwards. But uh, yeah, he would have the fashion or the, um, the dressing room where he would make the clothes and all that. And then that got away. And then I know he had the first like tours of Paisley Park during the celebration, I believe. And that's when it was 2002. Okay. Um, So I think it just shifted. And then towards the end, he really started opening it. But it was only two rooms and the studios. I mean, first it was obviously the main stage. And then he started the love room in another room, which Mm. he performed there. And uh, then, you know, when they had the tours, you could only see Studio B, C, and A. You never got it. Now you can see the entrance. You can see all of it now, but it was not like that in the last few years. It was only right. Studio B, C, and A. Because he lived in the other area, and you couldn't go there unless <laughs> he requested you or some shit. But, um, yeah, so I think it's changed, but I think he lived there, and he changed, again, a lot of the rooms changed his meaning. So one room used to be a dressing room, then now it's a hair salon or a basketball court. <laughs> mm. So he would that's how he, he navigated because when I toured, you know, Paisley Park, obviously this was when he was around, so it was an active studio when you went into that Studio C area. But before it was a basketball court. Mm-hmm. So again it it changed according to the the now. So how do you think with that, even with Paisley Park being open to the public to a certain extent versus Neverland being open (laughs) in general, except for the private rooms, how do you think, again, Prince maintained that sense of privacy? Yes, he paid millions of dollars in lawyers, but Michael did as well and made people sign NDAs and all of this. Why 
was Michael not able to maintain that sense of privacy in the way Prince did? Because oh, they both had compounds. I have an easy answer, and I might be wrong, but... Go for it. I don't think so. I think it's because Michael was larger than life. Michael uh-huh. was so much bigger than Prince, you know? Like, Prince <laughs> was big, but he kind of... I mean, Prince, in a way, it's funny, because he... Anytime he made big changes, he knew the risks that it would take. I know he knew when he told people, my name ain't Prince no more. It's this symbol, and you can't pronounce it, that half the world going to be like, man, you great. Like, psh, forget you. And a lot of people did. Right. <laughs> so it's like it's not like he fell off the face of the earth, but there was a period when he was the symbol, and then I would say even up until before musicology, he was relatively under the radar. He was not being, you know, I think... One deal is, yes, he paid money, but I think also people always kind of respected. Well, again, he wasn't really that big anyway. So he lived in Minnesota. It would be one thing if he was in Hollywood. But since he's mostly in Minnesota, he's not usually going to events. If he's at an event, it's something he made. Okay, I'm pulling on the show or I'm going to a private show, whatever. You know, It's not like he uh, be actively out like Michael was towards the end. Like he was still going. You know, you would see him coming out and, you know, people, I know TMZ had a couple of videos of you know, Michael what is it whether he was leaving rehearsal or going to rehearsal or interacting with his children he was he was out publicly and Prince he would get out but it wasn't like no one cared because it's Chad Hassel, you know? Mm-hmm. no that's I would not disagree with that <laughs> mm-hmm because <laughs> I would say if Michael lived in Chad Hassel, it would be crazy because the amount of fame he had he wouldn't be able to live in Chanhassen. He wouldn't be able to live anywhere, really, until and interact in a society because his fame was so big, it just didn't matter. It was a skeptical. Anytime Michael went out, like, this is how it was when he was six. This whole, I could not imagine that reality where no matter when you're out, people, Michael, Michael, picture, photo, ah, ah. And he's just like, I love my fans. <laughs> I love that too, everywhere you go, but they must have been uh, burdened sometimes. Yeah. So with that, I think the aspect of privacy Prince was able to maintain, I think that rewarded him some type of mental stability, being in the spotlight all the time. You have no space to yourself. You have no space to, to gather your thoughts. You have no space to think, to meditate. And so... I was wondering, on the subject of mental stability or instability or anxiety or whatever it is you want to call it, is there a specific song for either Prince or Michael or both that you can think of that would represent a specific mental state at a particular time? Um, Well, I don't know why this song came to me from Prince, and I have one from Michael, too. You know, we're talking about privacy. Michael did that song, Privacy, which is... My least favorite song of Michael. I, I don't think <laughs> at all. I'm not. I'm working on saying hate. I'm not going to say I hate it because there are definitely redeemable factors. But overall, that song is annoying, and I can't believe he made it. Um, <laughs> but that's the song in reflection to him demanding privacy. And I think Michael spoke a lot about paranoia. He really did deal a lot with the. You know, you know, somebody watching me kind of thing and mm-hmm. electric eyes and 
even you think of a song like Escape, I, he knew he was caged. And I think it was one of those things where he demanded still agency because Michael Jackson is like the only person really, if you think about it, where the media, they really just, they, they asked, like, just look at the Oprah interview. I was watching that recently again. Mm-hmm. And how inappropriate that interview is on several areas. Like, mm-hmm. you just ask him directly these questions and then expect him to, like, they did that a lot with him. Like, they took advantage of his, some would say he was naive a lot of the times, and then others would say, oh, well, he just didn't know people could just get ruthless. But they really did with him, and he and he, he didn't understand that. While a lot of it was created by him, I think he under, he didn't deserve a lot of what they did. Because they didn't do that with other people. But like, when it was Michael, it was like, oh, we can just say this and get away with it. And make him feel like he was a stranger. Like, how dare Michael walk out with a beard? Like, <laughs> why are you not, why are you growing hair? Or you're not supposed to, you know, it was silly. It was, it, it got really ugly. And, and I think it was, um, so Michael did, I can think of, again, that's what I can think of, like privacy or just the multiple things of paranoia. And with Prince, he has a song called Is It Lonely, which is one of my favorite songs. And it's, it sounds like depression. Like that's a song I can think of. Also, it just has this vibe where it's like he's, you can tell he, whatever he did, he feels really bad and it's depression and it's anxiety even. Um, but, when you really listen to both of them, I think they both were quite open with their emotions when it came to certain, whether it was being lonely, stranger in Moscow, that's probably an even more specific version. Yeah. That's that's one where it's like, wow, he, he, he sounds like he's he's in solitary confinement and he's the world most famous, he's lonely and didn't know how to deal with that kind of fame but yet grow without, I don't know, I, yeah, it's, you you take over. You tell me some of your examples. I can go on. <laughs> oh my goodness! So, in terms of Prince, the song I would think of the most would be the "Sacrifice of Victor." Yeah. Because um, I think that's the song that describes his life the most that I can gather up from <laughs> from my mental catalog of Prince songs. Because he talks about specifically in the song about a child named Victor had epileptic seizures and he spoke in interviews about having epileptic seizures. At least in the Tavis Smiley interview, he yeah, spoke about he that. Did, right? he that. And th- there were several things in the song that matched things that Prince talked about that happened in his life. And I think that would be the song that matches the. That's a perfect selection. Yeah, so that that's what I would think of when I think about Prince in terms of mental health and where he was at at the time. With Michael, of course, I know more about Michael. <laughs> so I would say, someone put your hand out. Uh, yes. I would say, stranger in Moscow. I would say, morphine. I'm going to get that. Why not forget that? In a little bit. <laughs> I would say, childhood. So those are the four songs from Michael, I would say, specifically represent some type of mental state he was experiencing. If you want to talk about Billie Jean, if you want to talk about somebody's watching me, there there are a lot of songs where he touched on his experiences, particularly 
his unrequited love for Diana Ross, many songs about that, his idea about people watching him, he talked about privacy, a song I actually do like. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of songs he talked about, his experiences that touched the surface, but those four songs, or let's say particularly Stranger in Moscow, uh, the, the whole history album, frankly, <laughs> represented his mental state at the time more than any other album history and i would say destiny but those songs i would say was spot on in terms of his mental state and you started seeing how he was unraveling in public as those songs were revealed yeah. and he he would get physically ill he would have to go to the hospital for pleurisy he would have to go to the hospital for whatever health related reason but mentally he was crying for help and a lot of people focused on these outside factors so people focused on for instance the plastic surgery there's something else going on internally for him with the plastic surgery a lot of people fans in particular i'm gonna say stands stands in particular for some reason deny his mental state he's talked in conversations he's talk in interviews about how he didn't necessarily like how he looked. That was no secret. That was no, no secret. secret. And one thing I did notice in interviews, and Geraldo asked him this, Daryl Denard asked him this, and there were a few other people. If you pay attention when they ask him, when you look in the mirror, dot, 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 notice how he tenses up. And he goes, in what way or what do you mean? And that is very clear to me that he doesn't like how he looks because why would you tense up if you like how you look when someone says so when you look in the mirror i mean how even do you if feel? you watch living with michael jackson the mirrors are covered he didn't he even said in one of the scenes like oh i can't look in the mirror right so i mean he's he's yeah he's very honest about that i don't know why fans deny these basic things it's like you're not paying attention you're just looking you just drowned in some sound or something but <laughs> if you're really paying attention michael's been quite honest about that so with prince i would say in terms of a mental state there were a few songs he spoke to not openly it was very veiled but he spoke about the death of his son in a few songs and so yeah there i was were, going to mention that yeah, so there were signs of his mental state at that period as well. And you saw the Oprah Winfrey interview, how he talked about his son and how they still had this room prepared for him. And he wasn't able to properly grieve. And he sort of was thrust into the spotlight as this was happening. And so I think that was probably, for me, the first time I really saw Prince unravel mentally with the, the death of Amir. Yes, I would actually agree with that. Just because you gave four songs from Michael, I feel obligated to say three more that speak of his mental state way back home. Mm, yes, yes. Yeah, see, yeah. I wrote it down on a, on a, a sticky because I'm, like, I'm not going to forget this one. Way back home, mm. come back in my computer. Mm. Uh, the songs in, in particular that really, I think, especially my computer, I mean, come back goes with his son and the loss of that, but my computer, I feel, is one of his most autobiographical songs in terms of his relationship with technology and him being online. 
I mean, especially the last few years, while it was cool that he would be tweeting, and it's not like he tweeted all the time, but it was a pretty regular thing. And just that whole thing of, you know, being, you know, not having, being in this mansion, but still quite alone, not having a wife, not having any children, living a different kind of life, because just to agree with you, basically, I, I do think a lot happened to his mental state when his son passed away. Um, just his embracement of religion, the way it, he embraced it and a lot of, I mean, this is all perception, but <laughs> uh, it, it just seems like he was trying to navigate with the weight of all of those um, experiences that really changed and challenged him, challenged the way he did music, the way he would, I mean, all of it, really. I would definitely say way back home is, I would compare that to a place with no name that Michael did. I feel like they both looked beyond the material at certain stages in their lives. They wanted to be at another stage. They wanted to be beyond all of this. And way back home for him, he wanted to be with God. A place with no name, same thing. Michael wanted to be with God. To me, that was a revelation, not playing on the Prince song. (laughs) But but to me, those were revelations that they were ready to move on to another point, another stage in their transition. And they would not be sad if they were to leave. That's what I gathered from both those songs. We in deep tonight. Put your scuba (laughs) gear on. No, I mean, I would definitely say that there's a link because they were pretty honest in their music about what they were going through or what they felt. And I'm so glad you mentioned Morphine because much like Way Back Home, even though Morphine came out, not even, I guess about 12 years after he, or before he um, passed away. Mm-hmm. But it's such in like, the, so the, the situation, I mean, if you, I mean, just the song Morphine, talking about Demerol, it's, it's very haunting. I can imagine listening to it then, it must've been like, whoa. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, this sounds personal. I mean, obviously, when an artist records music, they're method acting, but there's still some real links that come with that. And I'm sure if he wrote about it and he sung the way he did, it was a real thing. He was dealing with that. And just what he sang in that song, you hate your race, you're a liar. It's like you hear all of these conversations in his head. And I always listen to Morphine when I'm pissed off, though. That's the song <laughs> I play on blast because it's so... Then there's a moment where it calms down, and when you, you, it's that bridge part, Demerol, Demerol, oh mm-hmm. God, drinking, you know, that's the part where you can cry it all out. Then he goes back, ooh, boom, boom. It's just right. Wow, that, it's it's so like that's a song that I think really speaks to his health. And way back home, yeah, he's longing for. He wants to leave. He just he never felt like he identified with anyone. He felt really isolated, and he didn't want the typical life and. He, he feels happiest when he can see his way back home. So it's like, mm-hmm. he's happiest when he thinks of himself not being here. It's like, wow, okay. You really, I mean, I, and when I heard that song, it was when he felt 14, I remember just being like, this is real sad. Not, it sounds like he's saying something that's not on the surface. This is not just a typical song, you know. Mm-hmm. This is a song that he didn't obviously, he didn't ever perform the song live, you know what I'm saying. And, I think, yeah, it sounded really weird. I think everyone who 
heard it even would say that. If you remember when Artificial Age came out, most people all over had the same thing to say about that song, which is that this is, this sounds like weird, bad, weird. I mean, it doesn't sound good. It sounds like he's saying something that's, that's a bit more like, we need to pay attention to this life. And then of course, a year later, you get Revelation, you get all these others. There are, there are just these things happening that seem to line up. I mean, I know the mind has a way of making sense, you know, making sense out of anything if you look too hard at it, but I don't even think it's that hard to look at his latest events. The piano and microphone tour, just him speaking the way he was, opening up Paisley Park as often as he did. Mm-hmm. It did sound like, it It sounded like this is the end. And going again with the Afro, I feel the same way. It was cool. It's like, he ain't going back to that perm. You can forget about it. It ain't happening. <laughs> people kept saying, oh, you know, he don't change. I'm like, no, I don't think he is. <laughs> like, it's only getting bigger. He ain't cutting it. I don't think he's going to. A lot of, I mean, and also, just a side note, because we are not going there today, but a lot of anti-blackness was revealed when Prince got his afro. And mm. I never saw so much anti-blackness. Racism, <laughs> basically. People were, Ugh, he looked ugly. Why his hair got to be like that? He need to go back. He looked much prettier when he, oh, it's like, you know, this is how his hair grows naturally. <laughs> you know, why do you think it needs to be permed? Right. That's a new one. We're gonna put a break on that one, but <laughs> Yeah, that that's that'll definitely be another episode. Right. <laughs> I wanna talk about morphine for a little bit. Looking at the lyrics, people are getting all kinds of lyrics left and right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm taking what I've interpreted and I see sort of a super ego and the it going on i know we talked about that in in an episode it's kind of like the movie ghosts where michael jackson played both the societal aspect and he played himself so all the judgments being passed on him you're weird you're a freak and then he's he's saying i'm just trying to express myself in the best way i know how with morphine a lot of the anxiety came out. And so in one way, you can look at society talking about him. So he was known as this nice, clean young man. And then people are clearly seeing him break down and he's on some kind of drugs. People may not know what kind of drugs they are. But in 1993, as you mentioned, he acknowledged that he had a dependence on painkillers That was the first time the world, the general public, started to see Michael Jackson unravel as in opposition to the clean image he presented for much of his life at that point. And you started seeing during the dangerous period as well, it was the first time he publicly kissed someone. He's grabbing his crotch even more, even though he was doing it before. But you started seeing him be more aggressive with it. It, w- it was a different kind of image and where the public started to see him in a different light and his short film started to be banned. And so then you had the accusation. So everything started unraveling right. for him. Everything we knew about Michael Jackson up to that point publicly, it, no, <laughs> it all changed. You had 93, 94, 95 history 
came out and so he's doing they don't care about us all of this stuff so everything again you publicly knew about michael jackson right it's just just it's don't even think about that anymore right and yeah and and so with morphine i feel like he's talking about society's judgment of him but he's also talking about judgment of himself his anxiety is coming out in this song so you hate your race of course at that time people oh what's wrong with you you want to be white you don't you don't you hate your race and i think the whole religious aspect him breaking away from the jehovah's witnesses i feel like that's also coming out in the song because in a verse he says i hate your bible so there's just so much going on in this song so much going on in this song yeah (laughs) <laughs> I didn't and, catch that. Right. And, <laughs> but I think he talks about morphine being desirable to take away whatever emotional pain he's going through, not just physical. But when you're going through a lot emotionally, a lot of these drugs have effects of downers. When people are taking benzos, not only does it work for a sleep aid in some cases, but it works dealing with anxiety. I really think Michael was taking them for both. I don't know. I was not his doctor. But I think there were many drugs he was taking for various reasons. Where he goes, trust in me, put all your trust in me. It's not unlike a lot of songs which describe the effects of drugs and the addictive nature of drugs. Trust in me, trust in me, put all your trust in me. I feel like that is the addictive nature of the drug talking the desirability to take away whatever emotional or physical pain that is occurring. That's the effect of the morphine. The morphine is talking about right now. Right now, you're going through this pain, but I can help you quote that pain just for a little bit. I think he also talks about the potentiality of being critiqued or hated by his family. I think there's a lot of elements going on with the song. Yeah, uh, definitely. I'm going to go somewhere else with this. Relax, this won't hurt you. Before I put it in closure, I'll just count to 10. I'm thinking of a sexual assault. I know that may not make sense to people, oh, shit. but that stuff that, that does happen during sexual assault is just like, just relax, I won't hurt you. Just don't think about it. The drug is going on in his head despite trying to resist. The drug's like, no, I won't hurt you. I won't hurt you. And so I feel like the counterpoint to the Nine Inch Nails inspired music, and then you have the soft part, I feel like it's that counterpoint. It's the juxtaposition of the message. It's like, relax, I won't hurt you before I put it in. Close your eyes and count to 10. And his voice is vulnerable. Then you go back to, ooch. And so I feel like that juxtaposition at that point when you're having the soft music he's actually being assaulted it's not unlike the stories that people recount when they're being sexually assaulted i've also been sexually assaulted and there's a lot of stuff that goes on in your head a lot of things you try to rationalize you end up saying it's my fault all of these things happen i don't know if if it's comparable at all but that's what i see when i what i'm envisioning when i hear the song and when i'm reading the lyrics just that juxtaposition and that trying to resist but the drugs 
are just assaulting him at that point to the point where he can't get out of whatever situation that he's in. And so saying, don't cry, I won't convert you. Right. There's no need to dismay, close your eyes and drift away. I know you're trying to resist, but I'm here to take away your pain, if only for a little bit. And then there's the other side, Demerol, oh God, he's taking Demerol. It's like, oh. So now he's at that point where he can't get out. It's like, oh God, he's taking Demerol. This is what happens every time. And he's tried hard to convince her to be over what he had. He might be talking about Lisa Marie. Yeah, I think that is Lisa Marie person. <laughs> I always thought that. So it says, today he wants it twice as bad. And so if that's, if that's not addiction, I don't know what is. And, it is. And, and this is okay. What people need to do is, like we said the last time, understand what addiction is instead of judging people for it or saying that they're ignorant because they're addicted to something. Mm-hmm. That needs to be largely shifted. That kind of talk is just stupid. It doesn't have any relevance. It doesn't um, doesn't honor the relationship that people have with addiction and mm-hmm. to understand the, the way it affects the mind and and all of those things. Like it's a real thing. It shouldn't be just wiped away as some kind of problem. While it is a problem, it's not something that people are just choosing to. It's it's more complicated than that. It's a lot. Absolutely more complicated, more nuanced than, more nuanced, than yeah. how people talk about this song. And even at the end, when he's saying you just sit around and talk about it, you're taking morphine. People are talking about these addictions, but he's living through it. So you can right. say everything you want about what I'm going through, but this is my life. And I'm trying to ask for help. I don't know how. You're just you're just telling me what I need to do. But okay, what am I going to do? And so that's just Jamila's interpretation of the song. I'm sure everyone you ask is going to have a, a different interpretation. But I really do think the juxtaposition is really about an assault in a way and how he cannot escape the assault on the body through these drugs. And people take morphine all the time when they have operations or they have injuries and people don't have an addiction to it. It's, it's over. It's done. You know, the drugs were off. But when you're going through so much, you depend on this to deal with whatever mental state you're going through and physical. He had a third degree burn, namely the second and third degree burns on his head. I'm sure that's when it all started. But it probably wasn't at that point. It probably was, okay, you know, just I'm maintaining. But then 1993 happened and it's like, oh, I got I got to deal with all of this pain that's happening and probably started taking a cocktail of drugs and morphine probably did the best effect to deal with whatever mental and physical pain he was dealing with. Again, I did not know Michael Jackson. I can only interpret from my own experiences and opinions what I see through these songs. What I am seeing is someone who was in immense pain and didn't necessarily know how to deal with it or he had no idea who to talk to and surrounded himself with yes people in order to make himself feel better. And morphine was to me more of a cry for help than childhood. I know he said, well, if you want to know what's going on in my life instead of childhood, no, I think you can, but morphine was I mean, even more specific about what he was going through. If I was an interviewer back then, interviewing Michael Jackson, I'd be like, so Michael, 
When you did morphine. <laughs> no, but I totally agree with you uh, on morphine and childhood. Um, and a lot of those songs where he just kind of tells it from his angle and shamelessly as well. I mean, he put this on the record. Mm. That just shows that this is him sharing himself in a state that uh, I think a lot of us didn't see or we were just getting used to the fact that all of what Michael experienced, you know, while there's obviously an advantage and it's like, whoa, amazing, you know, Michael's here, he's given all these talents. Usually it seems that life in its strangest way has to balance it out with some other crazy stuff that you don't want to happen, but that's just what happens because you, mm -hmm. you know, you've achieved this, you achieved that, more people became money hungry and just not being able to trust anybody. And uh, so he, it was nice that he decided to to actually put that on the record because it's something we all go through and I think it does I mean the way you broke it down just now just like wow it's it just makes me want to listen to it again because I love that it's a message there and if you if you pay attention to the, all of the other stuff you're like oh this makes sense why he said that mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah I mean do, do you think if fans of Michael Jackson if they were to at the time 1997 1998 if they were to hear this song and write Michael, who knows how many people wrote Michael on this issue of this song? Yeah, if he were to read those letters, say a couple of the fans saying, you know, I'm a counselor on drug addiction, drug dependency. Please, I will do whatever it takes to help you. That song really struck out to me as a drug counselor. Please get some help. I will help you. Do you think he would listen to that? You would have listened to that. Yeah, that's a, uh, well, I mean, remember, it's his friend. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, I mean, at the time, especially if he was, which it's probably safe to say, he probably was still engaged in that while he recorded that. Um, I mean, who knows if he, I, I you know, because I'm thinking about this when we're talking. So he was trying to escape all of these different prisons he was in and he did it through self-medication and a reliance of it but I wonder if I don't see it as strange like because there's some people who are just opposed to talking to someone because I'm realizing that now a lot of people might just be like oh no you don't need counseling you don't need like there are some people who really just throw it under the rug like it's nothing and although the evidence suggests that it can actually really help and improve but I don't know if that was his mind state about it I'm not sure if he thought Oh, maybe I don't want to talk to they want to probably betray me. And the paranoia thing again. Maybe he didn't trust anyone with mm -hmm. what he went through because he had been let down so many times. And that wouldn't surprise me either because I feel like Michael was nice, but I don't think he trusted people. Right. You know, and it's one thing being nice and oh he's so nice, he's out of like, Yeah, but I'm not trusting you with the shit that's happening to me. I don't know if he did. I think there were certain people he trusted for sure, but Mm -hmm. I don't know if he would trust he would have trusted a counselor with that information because again being in the business to him he probably like well how do I know you won't say anything because I'm sure he's read stories maybe he has friends who the counselors did say something so I don't know there could be a lot of different reasons why he didn't mm -hmm. take that but I would I think if he did I don't know if he did or not I'm not I I, I seem to recall someone suggesting that he met up with a counselor but then he cast like he stopped going to sessions, not a counselor, but one of those uh, places where you can talk to. 
Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I read one place. I think it may have been Tara Borelli, and I know he is not trusted in the MJ community. I don't have that much invested in it, so I yeah, have read either. this book. That's what <laughs> but there was uh, one portion of the book where he spoke about Michael through Elizabeth Taylor going to a counselor and then running away from it. Again, I don't have the ability to, to validate that. So, yeah. One thing I wanted to discuss was childhood because I know you mentioned that. And then I wanted to talk about another thing, but childhood, let's dissect that. Relating to mental health, I think these songs are really important to dissect. The one part that sticks out to me is when he talks about compensating for the childhood he's never known. And you look at the cover of the History album where it's the giant statue that floated on the River Thames. And you have him talk about, talks about pirates and adventurous dreams. And I'm curious, I know this is what he thinks of as childhood, but was that really a typical thing for children to want to do? I, I know where I grew up, that wasn't. <laughs> but you know what I think when he says that? I think he's re- he's referencing Peter Pan because ah. this is definitely what, what, what Peter Pan was about, you know, like the pirates and, I mean, it was really racist with the Native Americans and shit, but... <laughs> ah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's what... Yeah, I think that's what he's referencing. I always connected it to that because I remember watching, I don't remember the title, but Johnny Depp is playing Peter Pan, or the, the writer of Peter Pan, anyway. And there are scenes where you, where, you know, the pirates with, with Captain Hook and all of it, you know. I, mm-hmm. I think that's, and you know, at this time, this is when he was saying that he, he was really identifying with Peter Pan, too. So. But yeah, you're you, right. you definitely have a point. One thing I did. If I were to do an interview with Michael, I would have asked him about the Peter Pan thing and about J.M. Barry because you see portions yeah, that's of the thing. Pan. J.M. Barry, right. Yeah. And J.M. Barry, apparently, uh, in a lot of things I've read, he identified as asexual. And so that may be where the story of Peter Pan connects with him. Michael definitely was not asexual. I, the, the whole... Peter Pan thing. I'm just curious about how that developed for him. I know he loved Disney. I would have loved to sit and yeah, I would grill him about, about Disney, Disney with him because and, um, Walt Disney was an open racist, sexist, etc. Yeah. So for Michael to identify with anything related to Walt Disney has always been strange to me. And I know as a marketing guy, Michael did connect with Disney in that way from a marketing perspective, but from a person who, for all yeah, his purposes, like, was right. exploited as a child, to look to Disney was just always strange to me. And I know people are like, Disney, Disney, but you look at the, the older Disney films, they had massive amounts of racism in it. You even look at modern Disney films, look at Pocahontas, for instance. The sto- actual story of Pocahontas, she was stolen and raped. And they put this this romance. Oh, she fell in love with John. That didn't happen. It's like Thomas Jefferson falling in love, quote unquote, with Sally Emmons. No, Thomas Jefferson was a child rapist, just like, quote unquote, John Smith. If it wasn't for Pocahontas, there, there was a war going on. And Native Americans were fighting against the colonizers. 
And then Pocahontas kind of the story was that she was kind of in the middle. I thought that's the thing. That's what made. That's why again, it's like you said. You know, that's I would I would love to ask Michael that too. Like, well, Michael, surely you know, (laughs) because it's a very odd thing that he embraced Walt Disney and just those kind of. And I'm sure he knew. I mean, I think it's also a thing where it's like at some point we all do it too. I mean, you say, oh, well, this person is awful for this one thing, but then there's another thing that I'm going to just focus on because this helps me be a better marketer or whatever. R. Kelly. R. Kelly. R. Kelly. I was about to mention, you know, I was about to say R. Kelly is the same example. I can, I was just talking to my friend about this, you know, I'm not going to deny there are some R. Kelly songs that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And I don't deny his, I think he's a great uh, producer and you know that just doesn't go away because he's a monster. I mean, he can be both. I always tell people you can walk into go. I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of people who can be quite talented. And then also you can be a really good person and be a shitty singer. So oh, yeah. it's like, just because you're a good person don't mean your music don't suck. So just because you're a good person and your music is good still doesn't mean you can have things about you character flaws and just you know we all got shit to work on but yeah i do i do think i still would love to ask him that because it's a big leap and he especially towards the end when he really was i mean he he let it go towards the real like last few years but like the march the martin the shit documentary But yeah, that's you. He, you see the statue of Peter Pan, right? Or just even he loved romance. Uh, the romance, um, I think it's whichever is that. It might be Victorian. Or, well, he would have configurations of himself being the statue with the little baby angels. Right. He was really into that kind of um, that style. Of right. And he drew himself. No, I, I, just, I just really wonder about all that because they're even related to Peter Pan when he would talk about it. There were some problematic things Michael said, and I don't even think he realized they were problematic as well read as he was when he talked publicly. And that that's another question I would love to have asked, because he had a public side, which was the Peter Pan, where he said some massively ignorant things. And then when he talked to, say, Ebony or Jet, he was on point politically sometimes. So it's, it's I'm just really curious about that. Why? Is it he felt he couldn't fully be himself and in public he had to talk about his appreciation for this racist, sexist dude. And then when he's talking on another end, like he would talk about, say, Malcolm X or he would talk about more revolutionary figures in history as opposed to Walt Disney. When he was talking to us, he wasn't talking about no Walt Disney. And so I felt like that's way beyond a double consciousness and that's pure marketing. So middle America, Europeans, they, they know Walt Disney. So I think he went there with that. But the fact that Walt Disney was problematic and he went there to me, that's problematic. Whereas <laughs> when he's talking to us, he's just like, yeah, you know, Stevie Wonder, black man and all. It's like, no, that's, you should be, you should be able to be yourself at all times. And I think. That is what I appreciated about Prince. I know at first he kind of played up this, I'm 
racially ambiguous kind of thing. But later on, he's just like, I don't care about that anymore. I already right. got my foot in the door. Right. Exactly. So, <laughs> but Michael, Michael, the more he talked about his eccentricities, he still talked about Disney and said, I'm Peter Pan in my heart. Like, that's not necessary. But he still went there. And I would have loved to, to pick his brain about that. Why was he so fixated on praising someone like Walt Disney? Again, as an outsider, I think it's because of marketing. But for him to appreciate the marketing aspect, you don't have to talk about the other aspects of it. Yeah, or you can was problematic. Right. With the That's whole amazing. with the whole Native American aspect, they have people yeah. in blackface, all this right. like all why are you praising that? That's what I was saying. I read the story of Peter Pan recently because I watched the movie. Which I mm. I, I, for, I forget this movie, the title, but it's basically the story of Peter Pan, the writer of it anyway. And when I was watching it and I and I read the book again, it's like this is really I mean, no, not for me. I don't know how Michael it must have been something in it that really mirrored his life and really connected to him and that's sometimes how you know fiction is it just it finds some some piece that you can identify with and it almost seems like it's written for you in a sense when he thought of peter pan i don't know if he even probably thought of like the native americans and captain hook maybe it was just the act of flying or never getting old and right knows what yes he do. but i mean it's i would love to ask him a question too and i think publicly also, when you mentioned, you know, a prince would, you know, begin to be played on this. What am I? Am I black? Am I white? You know? Right. When he was, <laughs> he did, he wasn't as embracing, but then later on, he identified with it a lot, and it was just a thing. You know, I mean, he even, you know, he would say, don't listen to the people saying, fear the fro. You know, like, he knew, <laughs> he knew that he was going to get some slack, but I think he was responsible for it because, again, it's not like he, like for the first three years of his career, the sound sounded the same. It didn't. So because of those changes, he would just go on to one thing or another. So when he got the airport, it's like, look, this is my hair. I'm wearing it. Like this says more about you than it does me. If you're gonna have a problem with me having an afro. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you think with childhood, because he talks about eccentricities, so yeah, if you think about it. The eccentricities that Michael had, again, I'm an outsider, so I I don't know everything that was going on in his head. The eccentricities, I think a lot of us came from abusive situations. I grew up in a situation which was very similar to Michael's as a child. Not exactly. I mean, I wasn't beaten because I took wrong dance steps, but I had Joe Jackson's in my immediate family. I was beat up all the time. I was told I was ugly. I was student. I, I grew up in that situation. I definitely enacted in a way similar to Michael, which is why I identify with Michael, where I didn't understand boundaries because I just wanted to be accepted. And how I treated people in retrospect, I, I don't regret anything that happened because I learned from it. But you need boundaries in your life. And a lot of people who grew up in abusive situations do not understand boundaries because they're always searching. They're always searching for acceptance. I think a lot of it is because he didn't get help for his trauma. And so his way to respond was to internalize a lot of the trauma 
and to act out and say, yeah, I'm Peter Pan. <laughs> right, right. Had he gotten help as soon as possible, you wouldn't be seeing all of that. That's just, again, Jim Miller's opinion. You didn't see him do a lot of that stuff after 2005. I think he had a lot of growing up to do. He ended up having three kids and he understood, okay, I get it now. And also, you know, like if he was seen with another kid, like, ooh, they would have put him under the prison. I think he knew a lot of that. I'm basing this on my own childhood, which was similar to Michael. I just think he really did need some therapy. And with the self-esteem issue, I don't, I feel like Prince definitely had some self-esteem issues. I do think he addressed it in a way when he talked to Tavis Smiley. There were issues, again, with the epilepsy. And he talked about how he dealt with it in his own way. And he also, in the Oprah Winfrey interview, talked about his height and how that related to his self-esteem. So there, there definitely were some issues, but he worked through that, through his creativity, through other means. Well, what do you think about that? Yeah, he did. I was going to mention the uh, Tavis Smiley interview. I think he was very aware of his um, growth because before I think he, he would be probably a bit more dismissive, dismissive when someone would criticize him or call him out on something that he wasn't on the game about. I mean, plenty of stories from Morris Day and Jesse Johnson and a lot of those people who were around remember how he used to be when it came to certain things. But I think it was just him holding up a fence so that he wasn't seen in his weakness or whatever, which a lot of people try to do that. But sometimes you kind of have to get broken down to realize you don't still have to be there, so you know mm-hmm. you can you can address issues more effectively. So I think he did talk about it a lot, and his self-esteem. I think he was pretty confident in himself. He became mm-hmm. more grateful and thankful because he really survived. I mean, if it wasn't for that musicology tour, you. I mean, not I'm not saying he was. It was really really bad. I obviously don't know, but I, you can just kind of see. After he changed his name, and you know, people weren't really checking for Prince. You know, it's like mm-hmm. uh, I can't. Really, this ain't Purple Rain. What you doing? You know, <laughs> what is this supposed to be? <laughs> they didn't know how to really identify with it, and so he wasn't. He was performing stadiums, but it wasn't like it was sold out all the time. Mm-hmm. So he really needed a push, and so and then I mean, it didn't help. He's like, all right, I'm a Jehovah's Witness now. So. All of those songs where I curse, I will never perform them again. <laughs> and like, what? And then, oh, and here's the Rainbow Children. The man is subjected to God and woman subjected to man. And I mean, it was a lot, I think, for a lot of people. A lot of people were really not feeling that new Jones mm. Prince. But then he said, okay. And he was married. I believe Manuela said, hey, you know, you should, you should tour your hits. I know you don't want to do them, but you should just tour. People would love it. And so... You do musicology, it's a huge success. The biggest mm-hmm. thing he did since Purple Rain, 20 years afterwards, ironically. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it becomes really big. And he's like, oh, well, this works. I'll be doing the hits now. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally, I'll do some new shit, but most of it is going to just be stuff you know in different arrangements. But I think he was quite conf- confident in himself towards mm-hmm. the end because he realized he had nothing to lose. He's not getting married again. He's not having no children. So what am I going to do? I'm going to have a show. 
I'm going to get a million dollars for it every time. Mm. And so he'll write a song called Million Dollar Show. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end, I feel like he got, he accepted that this is just where he was. And with Michael navigating, you know, it's interesting because, you know, here's this famous, hugely successful man throughout his whole career. Now he has three children. You know, he comes out of this whole, I think 2006, five, that really broke him. Like mm-hmm. that was the, that, that just, I mean, that broke him. And he really, I mean, he got out of it though. He was innocent. He, and he, you can see that he really was fed up with America at that point. He just left and traveled <laughs> <laughs> everywhere else in the world. And, you know, then he comes back, but those issues I don't think he he was getting there but I'm just what I'm saying is I think the tragedy is that he didn't ultimately get there it was too late but I can see that he was trying I you know you, he let go of that Peter Pan image and he was really just about the music and about you know performing to get his shit together really I think he really wanted to get it together but unfortunately the snakes were at the at the door before he could even get in like it was Mm. It's really tragic, really, when I think of Michael's ending and yeah. to someone like Prince, because with Prince, he was kind of the narrator and he ended it on his terms. I think he knew he, he gave he made it clear that he was kind of done with this whole thing. Like we're way yes. back home again. I think he, you know, he's like, why? Why should I do that? Or again, when he had the meeting with me, you're the new power generation. You, it's up to you guys to share the music. Like he wasn't going to pull in. I'm sure he had the tricks. I'm not saying that he didn't have the inspiration because Prince could find a song and out of anything. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I mean, he's like, look, I've been playing, playing guitar for the last, you know, third act girl. I'm playing a lot of guitar now. I'm just doing piano. That's it. I mean, <laughs> whoa, the multi musician who always would go from playing guitar to bass to piano, just the piano. And I'm going to tell you about my story. I'm mm-hmm. going to tell you about how I started out in the industry and how I learned this and how I had to mess up here. You know, he was he was very open and it ended in a very ultimately tragic in a sense. I mean he died in the elevator and he was alone, but it's still kind of I don't know. When I think of his passing it's like it, it kinda it was the next it just seemed like that was the next phase, you know. Mm-hmm. But Michael, he was getting his he was working, you know, he was really working and Unfortunately, the people around him did not care about him at all. Mm. And they just, it, his, they just, oh, we can make so much money. That's all they looked at it from that angle. And, and he wasn't, and all of the other things that he wrote about, the addiction to morphine and the, mm. you know, all of those childhood isolations that he was going through, all of it kind of morphed into this, I know I need to do these shows because I want my kids to see me, but at the same time, this is it. Right. (laughs) So, so it's, oh man, I really, but I applaud Michael's determination because he knew, he was very, it seemed like towards the end, he really started to become responsible and not that he was irresponsible before, but I think he really, he, he knew that more was expected of him after that. And so right. he his children with him. He wants he wants to show them and the world that he can do it in spite of he he didn't stop. He didn't just say, No, you know what, I'm gonna just live in I'm gonna continue to live in Ireland or whatever, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. granted there were probably a lot of situations, his money situation was it was 
the creditors and all of that. But I still think Michael, I mean, he, he, you know, he was like Aretha Franklin. He had old money. He would put it in, in bags, garbage bags of, you know, that's, he carried cash. That's the way he was. He was like, look, here's 200,000 in this bag. I don't have to worry about no creditors. <laughs> Because I think with both Prince and Michael, I think Michael was a little bit more forthright about what was going on in his life. Prince, it was a little bit more coded. Unless, again, you followed his life. Michael was a little bit more transparent. But you have that book that he wrote, quote unquote, wrote, (laughs) Moonwalk. And yes, it was ghost written by Shea Earhart. Let's not get that twisted. That's at this point, not even an open secret. It's just open. Industry trade magazines at the time mentioned it. So let's not get that twisted. But you read yeah, the book. Let's not get that twisted. Thank you. <laughs> you read the book and he definitely was not being forthright. He talked about how, no, I'm not an angel. He gave a little bit of clues here and there. But in comparison to the lyrics, the book wasn't saying nothing. And I felt that Dancing the Dream was a much more compelling book and really did tell you more about his thought process. I think with Moonwalk, he did not want to write the book. That was also a thing that Jackie Onassis talked about because she was the editor at Doubleday at the time and she had begged him to write a book. And he said, "Okay, fine, I'll write the book or I'll do the book. He really in my view, wasn't saying much. It was so basic. (laughs) I I don't understand why people are ranting and raving about this book. And I know people are, what's wrong with you? How can you? But I found the book boring. I know that's not a popular thing to say. But again, Dancing the Dream to me was a much more compelling book. And Michael's lyrical content is much more compelling than whatever that book was. And I don't feel like he was being totally honest in that book. Yes, there were tinges of him revealing who he was, but I feel like the book was just a chore to be like, okay, here, I wrote this book. It's a bestseller. Great. Okay, let's move on. But I think the book that Prince was set to write, I think he was going to actually give tips on how to survive in the industry. He was going to give part of his story, but I think he was... Actually, not totally. I don't think he was going to totally talk about his life, but I think he was actually going to reveal a lot about what made him tick as an artist. And so I feel like that would have been a much more compelling book. But Moonwalk was not about what made Michael tick at all. It was to be a way to satiate people who wanted to know about his life, but he wasn't giving anything away. Yeah, exactly. And that's totally what I would agree with. And it was true. I mean, Prince was very coded up's the word you use i think that's a very fitting mm-hmm. word you if you followed him you would get it <laughs> but right. to most people it's like i'm not listen you just released three albums in 2009 and you're doing another one they can't <laughs> they can't really follow and so a lot of people they miss it but if you follow it then you can see he's definitely mentioned you know just his highs and his lows and if michael did so in a way i agree that that seemed the dream is 
probably the most compelling. It, it goes, you, you're learning more about the philosophy of his mind. It's not just the typical nuggets that we're used to about his household and the childhood. I mean, you can really go either way with that. And we've, it's not really that compelling. The book, um, the, the one that was co-written. <laughs> but I think, yeah, they, they're both very much like that. They just, Michael being more famous is have it, he has a, a, a wider light and more comes to mind. And then with Prince, it's clues you're going to have to dissect. Even, I mean, the websites we talked about, the Lotus Flower website, you have to solve a riddle in order to even get in. <laughs> so, right. I mean, it's like he really had you on the work. It was a quest. It wasn't just like, here it is. You had to really search. A lot of people, the ones who really cared enough, would say, okay. But then the ones who just, oh, I'm not really that interested. And then they just get out of it. <laughs> or they miss that particular moment. You know, that reminds me a bit of, that's kind of how Esperanza Spalding, and I know they were great friends. They were like that, too. She's like that as well. She released an album once, and it was only available for seven days. It was $77. And, after, and it was no stream. I think she only made 77,000 copies. It was LP only. So you had to be that specific group of people. And it was just something she did, and then it was over. And Prince was exactly the same in the sense that he would do something. And if you weren't around, he didn't give you time. and He didn't give you ample time a lot either. It was just, all right, come or not. And if you can't come, then you ain't going. <laughs> but for those that did, then, wow, you were the lucky ones, you know, really the, the chocolate factory, you know, so to speak. So. Mm. <laughs> but they were both very open with mm -hmm. their going back to the topic about growth and just their mental state. I think both Michael and Prince were very open. They were very different in their approaches to these kind of conversations. Mm -hmm. I mean, Michael, you're right. As, when you mentioned just, you know, this new Michael, it was really a new Michael because, you know, you grew up with Michael. He's dancing as a kid and he's, he's this cute Michael. That's what a lot of that's my own little Mike, you know? But then he's grabbing his crouch. Like, what? And, you know, oh, he likes animals, too. And he likes, like, well, this, he, he's really changed. Now he's challenging that, that image that you set for him. And he's kind of expanding, like, no, I'm unbreakable. I'm, a, I'm invincible. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. It don't matter. Yes, I'm going to get with Elvis Presley's only daughter. And I'm going to marry her. Like, oh, how dare you you know <laughs> so he did that in a way that was completely it was it was eccentric to a lot of people and it just didn't make sense and then people had questions sometimes he would answer it sometimes he lied about the answers mm -hmm. sometimes he <laughs> it really just depended you know <laughs> they were out but, of well why I think he revealed so much more in his lyrics he didn't talk about the levels of anxiety he experienced like he did in the lyrics again there was nothing on the level of morphine and i know he was a little bit older i get moonwalk was released around the time of bad so there were no major controversies but even the controversies that he did face or oh, was he gay this or that you know i don't think that's that necessarily warrants a section in the book but i think he could have talked about dispelling a lot of the stereotypes 
okay, I have a higher pitched voice. Of course, that was also marketing, but he could have utilized that moment to address tools in the industry. So how pe- for how people to survive the industry. I mean, he's been there since the age of six. He started performing since five, but really sort of performing publicly a little bit later. And then being thrust into the spotlight at 10, he could have addressed that. But I think in his mind, again, marketing, maybe he felt, well, people don't really want to know about that. They want to know about my life. But he wasn't revealing that much. So I felt it would have been much more beneficial. He could have talked about way more in depth about the sale or the acquisition of ATV. He could have went into all of that, but he didn't do that. And it was just like, well, I just got two nose jobs. Okay, I'm not really an angel. Oh, you know, I would like to date this kind of woman. I I just, my opinion, I just don't find that compelling. I would have loved to have seen a textbook on how to deal with the industry because if anybody could write about that, it would be Michael. Yeah. See, that's when it helps that he has people to ask them those kind of questions. Mm-hmm. Not people who you assign questions to, which I think Michael Amprin did that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Both mm-hmm. of them. Just like, oh, you can't ask me about that. That was not. <laughs> you remember that clip of Michael and they asked me a question. He said, I did not circle that question. Oh, about his age. That's yeah. right. A fan asked him about the age. He's like, I, I didn't tell you to, to yeah, give me I that question. I did not circle that question. <laughs> like, nope, you will not ask me about how it feels. I ain't trying to unpack that shit with you. I think Chris was the same way. I, mean, I remember towards the end, he did this Ebony interview. And woo! Oh, yes, I read that. Yeah. It was actually, was that the interview in 2009? No, no, this was 2015. Oh, I read that one too. Okay. I think I did read that one. But what did they say? Well, it was pretty in-depth. I mean, a lot of people thought it was pretty... I mean, he sounded... It was just that he made these claims that we weren't used to him talking about. Like, he talked about Josh. He was like, you know, Josh ain't gonna stay around. He, like, he's gonna move on, too. Like, he knew people's backlash to phase one because mm-hmm. a lot of people hated that album. And so he was kind of calling out the troubles around that period, just how people were perceiving him. And that's another interview where he he revealed, you know, how, you know, this I've he called people by their name, which is something he rarely does. Like mention Josh, mention Shelby J, mention all these hmm. people, you know. But he took it down. I mentioned it because it was taken down. The original Really? Yeah. <laughs> and they took it down and he was like, What happened to it? Of course a lot of people managed to save it, but he took it down and then he re-released it, but it was edited heavily. So all of the people that was specified and all of it, the context just kind of changed a bit. <laughs> and that's something, that's what he would do all the time. Well, not all the time, but he would do it enough to where you can see he wants the conversation to go one way. If he don't like the way it's going, he's going to change it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so they both, they both were the same in that. <laughs> yeah, because I know Michael's the same way. Mm-hmm. But if he had people, maybe the grill like, no, Michael, I think this is actually good. People would want to know what made you buy the Sony ATV catalog or, you know, just these very specific questions, not the scandalous, personal, why do you do this, Michael kind of shit. That's what they gave him too much. He should have never allowed those kind of questions either. Like, who, right. we you don't need to know these 
oh, you know, how, how that's what they would do for Prince with the Fall. Every interview. So it's true that everyone says you have like 13,000 songs. Is it true? It's like, yes, I have songs. I recorded this music back in the day. It's like, why not ask? I'm not sure how much of that was intentional if they made it like that, but it seems like they both, they definitely had questions that you couldn't ask. And I wonder if it was the same way, like certain questions they wanted to be asked to maintain some sort of concern. Right. What would you consider to be the best interviews for them both? For Prince and Michael, Michael's one of his best interviews is the Ebony magazine. Jet, mm-hmm. Jet, I'm sorry. I believe it's Jet, right? I'm, yeah, the uh, Ebony Jet with Daryl Denard. Yes. Yeah. I like that one. I'm going to get one, one for each decade. So that one for the 80s. Oh. And then for the 90s, I think the one with Barbara Walters. Really? Yeah, I say that might be leaping too quick when I say that. Let me come back to that. Cause you <laughs> oh, that's an interesting answer. I'm sure. I, no, no, I would say Barbara Walters, yeah, because he is. See, there's a lot about him you see that. I'm, he, yeah, I would say that actually. That one. Mm-hmm. And from the 2000s, Geraldo. Okay. For Prince, the 80s. He didn't do many interviews in the 80s. Um, he he did. But he did. But they were like, I mean, I'm thinking of the one at MTV. That's the one. That oh, okay. Um, I mean, he did because give me an interview he did. I like give me one that you can really think about. Well, he did a really long interview in Rolling Stone about eighty-five or eighty-six. No, definitely, oh, definitely around eighty-four, eighty-five. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that one he revealed. At least I don't recall it as one of the top memories for me. I would say the one for MTV is interesting. In the 90s, I would say he did an interview with uh, a local Minnesota lady. It's on YouTube, actually. Um, I've seen it, yeah. (laughs) I really like that interview because he, you know, this is when he had the website. He's talking about just his distribution methods and how he was responding to criticism and what made him, you know, the differences of audiences receiving his music. So I think that's a really good one. Also, that's tied with the Tavis Smiley one in the 90s. And... He's had a, you know, I like George Lopez. I like the one he did with Tavis Smiley in 2009 as well. And 2004, actually. All of his interviews are very, same for Michael and Prince. You you can get a vibe of what that concept is about when they talk about the music and what led them to make the sound. For Michael, one of my favorite interviews, I think it was Tom Joyner. So Tom Joyner did an mm-hmm. interview with Michael on the set of Beat It. And that is actually one of my favorite interviews that Michael did. And I felt like he was the most honest about the process. He was the most honest about himself. And after that, he shut down. But it's one of those rare moments where you actually saw him open up. And it was the interview in the set of Beat It. And I'm sure it's still on YouTube. (laughs) And that is probably... Out of the 80s, that is the best interview I've seen. Because oh, it was... You said it was Tom Joyner, too? I think it was Tom Joyner, yeah. Before before he became really, really, really famous. And I just love that kind of interview because he was able to open up about the process. 
And it's very rare you hear a Michael Jackson interview. The other interview that I really like is the one he did for MTV in 1999, where Uh it was another interview where he talked about, it was strictly about the process. It wasn't all about his life and, oh, who did you date or are you this or that? It was about the creative process. So those are my two favorite Michael Jackson interviews. And I always go back to the one in 1999 in particular. So it was around the time, of course, he was recording Invincible. They asked him about the whole MTV process of just playing rock music. And was it CBS? who said we're going to pull all our art. Like they ask those kind of questions. And it's very rare where you get a Michael Jackson interview that just talks about that stuff. And again, he was honest. He was open. I would say the Geraldo interview in, around that time, like in the late 90s, 2000s, I would say that's another interview where he was a little bit more relaxed than other interviews. Oh, yeah. So those, those are the three. I know when... Molly Meldrum out of Australia has interviewed him. He's a little bit more relaxed as well because they built a relationship over the years. But you can tell those questions are definitely kind of canned. (laughs) (laughs) But the Prince interview, I would say the one in Rolling Stone, that's probably the best interview I've seen with Prince because it, it was really detailed. I don't think anything was cut out of it. Uh, they asked him about spirituality. They asked him about his creative process, that had all kinds of questions. And I think it was a really compelling interview. I really do not like the Oprah Winfrey one. I think she tends to be more than a little bit exploitative in her interviews. She was exploited with Michael. I think she was exploiting um, Prince and Mike's son's death. It just seemed really tame. It's kind of like that Michael Jackson response video to the Bashir thing. It just, I, it was that lighting as well. It was that really weird porn lighting. I wasn't particularly into that. I think there were some things that were incredibly interesting and compelling. Like he talked about, uh, in a way, the spiritual connection to various genders. He talked about how his appreciation of his feminine side. I just appreciate how he spoke to that a little bit more in depth than he would normally do in other interviews but how oprah winfrey addressed it i didn't like i felt like she was just exploiting the situation and he answered it in the best way he could he said i don't we don't have all the answers he said we i don't know who he is but the fact that (laughs) he could acknowledge he has various sides to him and that is in connection with his spiritual sense i really did appreciate that and he did talk a little bit about the prophets as well. I appreciate the, the Oprah Winfrey interview, but I just don't like her interviewing style. And so I can't say it's one of my favorites because of that. Had someone else interviewed him and he was able to reveal those kind of answers, I think it would have been excellent. That interview in particular with Oprah, he answered it really well without going into the details because I think a lot of people, that story broke pretty fast and He really wanted to deter from it. And so adding in with what he said to Oprah, he just started performing a lot. So people just kind of forgot about it where it wasn't the center of conversation. Oh, I think I think the interview she did with Michael was atrocious. Personally. (laughs) 
<laughs> and my my favorite interview at the it's not because it's compelling or they say anything was the Diane Sawyer interview with Michael and Lisa Marie. The faces he was giving her. It's so much body language. That's enough body language. Yes. Yeah. He was like, woman, if you... <laughs> he was like, I'm not having it. <laughs> you about Diane Sawyer? Yes. Yeah. There's so many gifs from that interview. That oh, man. Because... <laughs> He was just looking at her like, if you don't stop asking me these questions. <laughs> there was one time he said, didn't he say, I want to let her answer the question or something. He said something because she interrupted. She was like, no, let her answer the question or something. Mm. I was like, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Diane Sawyer is annoying. Let me just say that. Sorry for you, Diane Sawyer fans, but who would be a fan of Diane Sawyer? Well, the, the same thing with the, the Whitney Houston. Diane Sawyer, as terrible as she is as an interviewer, yeah, exactly. she has the best interview. Because the Whitney Houston one is my I favorite know, one as I well. Know. That's my favorite interview, too. She, Whitney, same thing. She was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Both Michael and Whitney was like, what yeah, is Whitney wrong with you? So funny in that interview. Why are you talking to me like this? <laughs> But it's not, it's not even a compelling interview in terms of the questions or anything or the responses. Like it's just, as you said, the body language, their faces makes it the best interview. Yeah, that's what makes it really good. They don't fail at showing. The same thing with the Whitney Houston, Wendy Williams interview. That both, Whitney was like, I'm not playing with you, Wendy. What? No. I have. self-esteem again i think the sacrifice of victor spoke to that a little bit prince did fairly well with dealing with whatever mental state it part of that for him was turning to jehovah's witnesses but i think he also transcended that and was able to evolve spiritually but michael i don't think was able to get past whatever issues he had to a certain point and a lot of people don't believe him when he talked about having those issues i really don't understand when someone is asking for help they're asking for help no one asks for help for fun unless they're a narcissist or something and i don't think michael jackson was a narcissist i think he honestly was asking for help and didn't know where to go so when he talked about having an eating disorder, he said he was dealing with anorexia. This came from his voice. I don't know if technically he had anorexia, but he associated it with anorexia. I know when he was rehearsing, when he was uh, practicing for tours, he didn't necessarily eat so much. But he also said in the conversation with Glenda Stein, food was a means of control for him because he had no other forms of control over his life. That is a huge reveal of someone who is in a desperate state. And for people to not believe him based on how he publicly presents himself is a huge problem. And maybe that's why he didn't reveal. It's like people, once again, who have been assaulted 
they don't say anything because people don't believe them. You go to the police, the, the, the police further victimize you. People say, what are you wearing? So what happened with this is it. He clearly was in need of help with all of the tapes, all of the documents that came out, the transcripts, and people were still saying, well, he looked healthy. So no wonder he didn't ask for help. <laughs> and then when he's talking about having an eating disorder, people going, how can you say that? Again, it's because of the stigmatizations we put on these things that allow us to make that kind of foolish response like that. It's like, it's okay to acknowledge that this is what he exemplified through his life. He's been honest about it. Why should we lie? Why should we pretend? That's a very serious thing for someone to say to... I mean, I don't know if he and Glenda Stein were friends, but they definitely had a friendly relationship. But for him to say that to her, you know, I'm dealing with this anorexia thing, and it's the one thing I can control, food. That's a huge deal. And I don't know if in other aspects of the conversation, she said, hey, Michael, you have to get help for that. I'm willing to help you. I'm willing to go through with this with you, but with all of the dancing you do, with the stamina you use, you need energy, you need food. What are you doing? I don't know if they had that conversation, but for him to reveal that, for him to talk about his drug addiction, for him to talk about his various levels of anxiety, his loneliness, he was going through so much. And all we could do is stand by and look because most of us did not know him. And we go, oh, well, man, it's too bad he died because I really wanted to see him. And I've heard people say that. Are you serious? The man needed some help. And that's all you can say? He wasn't eating. Kenny Ortega said he had to chop up his food and feed him. No person who is in that situation should even be rigorously rehearsing for a residency. No way. If you have to chop up somebody's food and feed them and in 80 degree weather, they're wearing eight layers. No. You're going to tear off the heads. People are going to be mad at you saying all this. It's not true. It's not true. Michael was very strong. He was very resilient, but... I agree. We gotta call attention to these things and stop looking at it as a matrix of justification. So it's just okay to acknowledge these things, you know? He's always had these problems and for fans or stands to deny that he had health problems, that he had physical and mental health problems, so we can continue to be quote entertained by him, that says a lot about society and us. We don't care as long as we are being entertained by our favorite people. And that does not contribute to anyone's holistic mental health at all, always wanting and wanting and wanting from them. We're always feeling a need to to have them cater to us 24-7, and they get no kind of breaks. He could not be a father to his kids because he had to go out and pay bills for this residency. I think he could have done 10 shows, made some money off of that, contributed to paying his bills, taken 
a break to be with his kids and then just do performances here and there. I think that's feasible, but people just wanted to take and take and take from him. Eventually, he succumbed to that with drugs in his system. When people say, well, it wasn't just Conrad Murray, it was him as well. I'm not going to actually disagree with people because he acknowledged that he had an addiction. It's actually a fact that he would do doctor shopping. That's not, I don't think anyone could disagree with that. I think the problem is that he had yes people. Anyone who said, I cannot administer this propofol to you. A, I'm not licensed. B, I am not an anesthesiologist. C, you don't use propofol to fall asleep. You use it when you're under the knife. You don't use it for any other reason. And when somebody said that to him, he's like, okay, I'll find it somewhere else. But he didn't have enough people saying, no, I'm not going to give that to you. And if every single person said, no, I'm not going to give that to you, then yeah, he would have to find other means if it's really about addiction. But he had yes people in his life. The people who I considered to have murdered him, they were wanting from him on other levels in terms of financially. They wanted the catalog. They wanted all these other things that people didn't necessarily see. So he had a lot of things coming at him. Imagine if you have all of these demands coming at you. Yes, I would have dealt with it in in another way. I don't take drugs, so I don't know, again, what he was going through. But knowing that he had this addiction, what did he do to take care of himself? I don't know. He knew who he could go to to enhance his addiction. And so it's a whole lot of elements. And to talk about his self-esteem and his insecurities, I'm going to say with performing. After having not performed in so many years, I'm sure there were some levels of insecurity with that. And with that insecurity, he took more drugs. With that insecurity... It was hard for him to eat. With that insecurity, it was hard for him to sleep. And he had to deal with all these other levels. Just so many things going on that we possibly cannot even know. But I do think, going back to childhood, I do think a lot of that has to do with how he was treated as a child. I think his treatment, his trauma as a child encompasses all of these other things that go on in his life not necessarily eccentricities, quote-unquote, per se, how he responded to not only the eccentricities, but performance, to people's critiques of him, to all of these things. And on one level, you could say, well, you know, I'm just going to brush it off. But did he really? I don't know. I think he had massive self-esteem issues. I think so, too, but to the extent in which he tried to fix them we don't know Mm -hmm. but going on what i said i do feel like towards the end he he grasped his reality in firmer hands than before and i think he was on the path of being recovered from the traumas he experienced but yeah he just had so many people around him that was just that's who didn't care about him and that's the issue also with yes people when you have a relationship with whoever you employ you can employ the people who don't say anything and right 
<laughs> you know, that's that's the danger. I don't think it's always a bad thing, but it's like at some point you need some outside advice that's to your advantage. And even if you might not want to hear it, you just got to have to go with it instead of finding people that just sign off of anything so that you don't have to worry about it because then there's a lot of manipulation and exploitation. The two songs, Things I Do For You from the Jacksons, which I think is definitely telling of Michael's life. I think he foreshadowed majorly in that song. And, <laughs> and then you have Morphine where he talked about a heart attack. And so I really think he knew the risk he was taking with this addiction. I think he knew what would happen he left this earth due to a cardiac arrest based on certain types of drugs in his system. I don't know what he was going through at all, and I don't wish that for anybody. But with things I do for you, he talks about people are all over, all over the world are the same everywhere I go. So even at that point, and yeah, it was co-written by the Jacksons, but I really think a lot of this is Michael. He talks about... Yeah. The, People taking it to the extreme. Am I being used? I just need a clue. I don't know which way to go. And so that anxiety, even at that point, this was before off the wall and he's experiencing this. So this tells you a lot when he talks about uh, always wanting something for nothing, especially what they don't deserve. Reaching in my pocket. I just got to stop it. He's foreshadowing things that went on in his life with Sony, with being sued for songwriting, with all this stuff. And so he had a huge range of experience with being in the industry, so he knew how people work. But yet he still put himself in these situations. And I think Prince was able to better navigate that, having entered the industry on his own terms. He already had 10 steps ahead of Michael in that way. I know people talk about well, Michael's in the industry since the age of five, but Prince already came out roaring where he played 99.9% of the in instruments. And he was like, well, I'm not signing this deal unless I have creative control. And I feel like he was at a farther advantage than Michael. Him dealing with them, him dealing with the issues related to his father. I know people saying, oh, he forgave his father. That may be true, but he never properly dealt with the trauma he experienced under his father. Right all of the changes he went through physically, some due to the painkillers, some not, with the nose jobs, all of this. When you're being told a certain part of your body is undesirable, you want to fix that to please the, your abuser in some cases. And that's what happened. People, they encourage him, say, well, everybody in Hollywood does it, and they just give the same answers he did without understanding the nuance. He talked about wanting to please his father publicly as well. It was not a secret where he talked about what he did. Everything he did, he wanted to please his father. So there was still some connection to that trauma. So all the nose jobs, all of the stuff, how hard he performed, how hard he was on himself, it was related to that trauma. And I honestly don't think he got help for it. I honestly don't think he got over it. I really wish too late now, honestly. But I really wish he did get some help. And maybe talking to Prince, you know, I know they hung out, but maybe Prince also having dealt with the industry 
in a shorter amount of time. But again, he came out rare and was like, I'm going to have creative control. If not, I'm not going to sign with you. Had he talked to Prince about that, and I think he was working towards that, but it was so late in the game at that point. And maybe that's when he really was getting together with Prince and getting some tips. I don't know. So much of what happened in Michael's life, I really do think he could have taken some mental tips from Prince. He could have, and on some levels, taken some spiritual tips from Prince. Prince definitely had faults. <laughs> yeah. But I think how he chose to answer people in interviews, how he chose to live his life, that could have been a huge lesson. And the Jacksons were secretive. If there's anything they didn't want to reveal, you don't know about it. You know it, exactly. <laughs> so, so it could have happened. But I think Michael's constant need for love, Michael's constant need for acceptance, was really something that affected how he lived his life and the decisions he made. Yes. It's a shame he didn't get that out, but I mean, it, it's worth mentioning that he was on the road. It's just too many things came about afterwards that deterred him from that full path recovery. So what could be, but for what was, there's growth. I think we did a good job at it, really showing just the different songs and media and the way they just engaged us, how we can see that they were making steps towards uh, just growing into a better person, not being as petty, but you know, <laughs> getting it going. I would love to know the comments to see what anyone else would be able to bring out. Oh. <laughs> <impact a> lot. <laughs> I think there were some people who were there for him in this way, who loved him and accepted him, but were not yes people who did not take him talking about himself in a certain way. They said, look at where you are. You are a strong person. And so another song I've been thinking about was also from the Dusky album. The first album, which to me was a cry for help for Michael, the blessed soul. And so he talks about, I try to do what's right for me, but no one sees the way I see. How often was that a common theme in his song? And then I try to please him so, but how far can this pleasing go? This level of anxiety, I'm trying to please the people. Maybe it's the father or whoever it is. Maybe it's the public. And then Jackie, since you've got to start doing what's right for you because life is being happy yourself. And imagine if... He had that conversation with Prince. Because Prince was like, I know people ain't going to be happy with what I do, but I got to do what's right for me so I can stay mentally stable. So I'm going to continue to create the music that I create. And I'm going to continue to practice things I practice because that's what helps me get through the day. So I'm going to make news. Whether or not people are happy with it, that's their problem. They want me to stay in Purple Rain. That's not where I start and that's not what, where I'm going to end. <laughs> so, and he sings, sometimes I cry because I'm confused. Is this a fact of being used? There is no life for me at all because I give myself at beck and call. And I feel like this is a repeat of Michael. And to go to this is it. This is, I'm doing this to please people that having his son out the balcony. So much of what he did was to please other people. 
he didn't have discernment. So the response is, you can't please the world and yourself at the same time. You've got to be happy for yourself. And if you have any sort of spiritual perspective, you look at how you're pleasing God. He always talked about how he wanted to please God. So that's who you have to look to. Like, who cares about all these people in the world? Do what makes you happy. That's performing, not necessarily touring. But do what makes you happy and be the best at it. Was he really happy with himself? I will never know the answer to that. But in my mind, I don't think he was. I think his children made him happy and a few other people. But other than that, no, I don't think he was happy with where he was because he was still massively dealing with whatever trauma he had in his life. And I think Prince, he had trauma as well. But he's like, you know, I'm going to move past this. And he looked at so much of his life as a spiritual experience and spiritual experiences tend to be transforming and transcending in many ways. I don't know if Michael was able to do that in a way that was healthy. Do you think for fans or stands of Michael and Prince, I know people at this point have a tendency to attack each other. In this time, what are some ways people can have some growth to progress in honor of them? That's a good question. I think that Prince and MJ fans could all do, anyone really, doesn't just have to be specified to any fan community, but if you are an admirer from to someone's work, to consider the fact that they might have experiences that led them to make these decisions that we might deem problematic or whatever, we need to understand the root cause to a lot of the actions that are had. And that usually just starts by being more empathetic because you don't have to be an asshole. I think people know when they can go beyond their limits just to justify something that they don't understand. But mm. there's a lot we don't understand. That's another thing that's very good to remember that we're not always getting a nuanced conversation about something. We're only having to connect dots that are scattered and fragmented at best. So we just got to take our time and how we consider the ways people approach their trauma in their life. because. You know, healing is all, that's what the, the journey is all about. Everybody wants to be healed, but it takes time sometimes to um, really face the weight of whatever that is, too. I mean, Michael being this childhood star and having to just navigate life through it, I mean, I can imagine it was very painful and exhausting for him. And in similar fashion, Prince, you know, having created this dynasty for himself through Paisley Park, he still had to face the fact that he was lonely, too, I think. You know, mm -hmm. just his son, that goes back to the decisions he made with religion and what's going to happen when I pass away. Um, it's like they both seem to navigate at best, the best way they could. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we all can just learn from that. We can learn from the fact that sometimes sacrifices are made. Sometimes people are going through a very hard time because they don't know how to correctly diagnose whatever they're going through, which is why I talk in the songs yeah that's one thing we can do we can all be more empathetic absolutely thank you so much for listening to this episode of music and we once again we appreciate your support if you have any questions or comments please let us know 
Thank you once again. Thank you.